Thank you for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. Our current series is called Power and Weakness, a study in 2 Corinthians, where we look at how we experience Jesus' power and grace in our weakness. We hope this message encourages and challenges you, and we would love to see you at one of our services at 5.30 on Saturday evenings or 9 and 10.30 on Sunday morning. A reading from the book of 2 Corinthians. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you in a way, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. The word of the Lord. Good to see you hearty Coloradans this morning. And I know some Ohioans and some other guests we have this morning. Thanks for braving the roads. I have some staff news want to share with you. First, uh, many of you hopefully were here a few weeks ago when uh, Danielle Reeves announced that she is going to plant a church. She's currently our executive pastor. I say currently, she'll be on our staff through the remainder of the year, but really her official title now is church planner. Danielle is going to plant a church. And you'll be hearing more and more about that in the weeks to come as she figures out the what and the where and the how and all that. And we're going to get to partner with her and all of that, so stay tuned for all that. But there's one thing left we need to do for Danielle, and that is to celebrate her, to honor her 25 years of ministry to us and to this church. So November 10th, after the second service, we're going to have a lunch, a program, but I have a special request. Would you bring a card or a note, handwritten? We just want to drench Danielle in love and encouragement and say thank you for 25 years of serving Waterstone. So come and bring your written words of encouragement for Danielle. Second item of staff news, some of you again, have been around here a while, know that Nick Lillo was our founding pastor. Uh, After 35 years, we made a transition in January. Nick uh, has stayed on our staff, he's leading our leadership program and still preaching But some of you might recall that in July, his wife Barb contracted a very serious infection in her spine that has left her paralyzed from the neck down. She's been at Craig Hospital. She has been able to regain some movement in her left arm. She's able to lift it. Some movement in her legs. There's some encouraging signs. But the bottom line is she's going to be in a wheelchair for the foreseeable future. And uh, so what that means is a couple of things. Uh, She's going to be in a wheelchair that she is going to be able to drive with her left arm, but Nick has to remodel the first floor of his entire house for wheelchair access. So so widen doorways, build ramps, tear off all the rug, all that. It started uh, uh, Friday. He needs to buy a motorized wheelchair, and he needs to buy, he's already bought, a wheelchair van. He still owes money to Craig Hospital for some of the treatment that Barb's had while she's there. Bottom line is, the tab on all that's about $90,000. 
So we're asking you, a generous congregation of Waterstone, if you would be so led to uh, write a check for $10 or as much as you want to give, we want to just help the Lillos defray some of the cost of the expenses that they've been facing now. You can do that by writing the check to Waterstone, and on the, the memo line, put Care Fund Lillos. You can also do it online through our giving page. Thank you so much for uh, your, your uh, considering that to help the Lillos. Let's pray. Uh, I'll give you a heads up. Uh, last night, I shared with the congregation that this has been one of those sermons that I went out for a three-hour walk yesterday and preached it about four times to, to Jesus, and uh, I preached four different services each time, four different messages. So last night, I had no idea how this was going to land. It landed about 45 minutes. So we can't do that this morning, so we need to pray. Let's pray. Father, part of the problem is I'm so excited about this text, and there's so much here. There's so much for us to learn and uh, to take into our lives and capture us. Uh, I am, as Billy prayed, I'm fully expecting that we are going to leave challenged today, and we're going to leave differently. But uh, Lord, help us get there. Help me land the plane. Help Help us, Lord, to just get a glimpse of what you want for us in this passage. It's so important for us in our culture so important for us in our families, so important for us in our work lives, because in each of these areas, we are going to encounter opposition. We need to be skilled people with opposition. So speak to us today, Lord, because we need this. Come, Holy Spirit, bring your word, illumine our minds, change us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most famous preachers in America is defending the United States president against charges of corruption. Um, Some of the closest advisors and cabinet members of the president have been uh, convicted of crimes and sentenced to prison time. Uh, the, The preacher is saying it's not just a witch hunt, it's, quote, a damnable rot that is happening. And the president is having uh, multiple extramarital affairs and is even rumored to have had a child with one of his younger mistresses. Now, of course, you know that I'm talking about Warren G. Harding, the 29th president of the United States, a practicing Baptist. Now, he was elected in 1920, and if you read any of the history of the Roaring Twenties, what you'll, decide, what you'll discover is that the Christians uh, were divided about this whole series of events. There were those uh, on the left were saying that certain things were, should be done. There's those on the right were saying certain things. And there was a certain uh, amount of secularists, a contingent of secularists who were saying, all of them, that the future of the American nation is at stake. And it's only our worldview that will save it. Now, do I need to remind you that the Roaring Twenties are about to happen again? So we have about a year to prepare. What I'm really after this morning is that there are few things that are, well, let me say it this way. There are few things in in our life and culture 
that bring out the worst in Christians and culture than politics. Now let me just quickly define politics. Politics is the human response to power. Politics is the stewardship of power. There are few things that diminish the Christian witness within a culture than politics. And there are few things that divide and therefore weaken churches than politics. And do you know one of the reasons, there are many reasons why all that's so, but the one I want to center on this morning, one of the reasons is we're not good at opposition. We're not good at responding to people who have different opinions. We're not good at uh, when people push on us about our beliefs and our faith structure. We're just not good at opposition. And so I think it's very timely for us this morning that we have a case study, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where we're going to see Paul responding to opposition and we're going to learn, in his words, some weapons for us to respond to opposition. Because if anything is coming, it's opposition. So before we look at the weapons, let's set the context again of of the letter of 2 Corinthians. You'll remember that around 50 AD, Paul walked into the city with a missions team and began preaching in the synagogues. And after about 18 months, several believers had formed and there was a church. But you'll remember, we've talked about this some, that Corinth was a unique city with a unique culture. It was very focused on wealth and celebrity. And so what was happening was that these young Christians still had some Corinth in them, and they were trying to decide what a successful pastor looks like. And Paul, he just didn't fit the bill. I mean, by his own admission, he couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag. He was a tent maker, Manual labor, which in the ancient world was way down on the ladder of celebrity. And then, to top it all off, his letters. Well, let's look at his letters. What were they saying about it? For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Paul is pushing back. But I want you to see here is that Corinth is questioning Paul's integrity, right? They're saying, Paul, when you write, you're, you're a bully. Let's face it. You're like Mr. Strongman. But when you're with us, you're milk toast. You're a pushover. They are questioning his integrity by calling him two-faced. Have you ever had your integrity questioned? challenged. The other thing that Corinth was wrestling with, if you look at uh, verses 12 and 13, they went on to say, we, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. Not only were they questioning his character, they were questioning his strategy, his work. They were stepping on his ministry. They were comparing him to other churches, comparing him to other pastors and saying, Paul, you don't measure up. So they were stepping on his ministry. They were also stepping into his ministry. Paul, in chapter 11, he calls these opponents super apostles. And the super apostles were trying to weasel their way into the leadership of the church 
and take it to where they want to take it. They had begun to step over boundaries and enter a sphere of influence that didn't belong to them. Paul was the church planner. Paul had a vision for this church. He goes on in the chapter to say, from Corinth, we want that to be an outpost so the gospel can continue going west. But because of the interference of these super apostles and them stepping in where they didn't belong, the church was now experiencing mission drift. And they were off mission because they stepped in where they didn't belong. So let's capture this. The opposition that Paul is facing is he's having his character questioned, two-faced, and he's having his strategy questioned. No, Paul, we don't wanna go where you're going. So how does Paul respond? Two weapons. First, go back to chapter 10, verse one. Very first thing out of the gate, first weapon, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away, he's quoting their accusation. First weapon for encountering opposition, humility and meekness. I think you can see in the text Paul's emotion. He wants to connect with Corinth heart to heart. He even refers to himself in the third person, I, Paul, I appeal to you. He wants a heart connection with them so that they can begin to discuss his character and his strategy. How do you get a heart-to-heart connection with someone who disagrees with you? Not Facebook. Not angry emails. Not any of those kinds of common tools. How do you get a heart-to-heart connection with someone who disagrees with you? By the humility and gentleness of Christ. Humility. Here's my favorite definition of humility. It comes from a book by John Dixon, a great Australian writer who studied honor and shame and humility in the Greek world in which Paul lived. And he defined humility the way Paul would have understood it this way. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, to deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. The humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in the service of others. Now Paul being the church planner, he could have reaped and and reamed and rumbled this church. He could have brought the hammer down because he's planted this church. He had a certain right of ownership, but he didn't do that. Instead, he seeks to appeal to the heart and in humility, so he, he holds power to serve others and connect with them. I'm suggesting that humility, no, I'm not, Paul's suggesting, that humility is a disarming strategy to help you get under the opposition and connect heart to heart. I'm suggesting, Paul is suggesting, that humility has a beauty that disarms. Let me ask it this way. When you see one of the people in your life you respect, whether a figure from history, someone you really have a high regard for, and then when you see them doing something humble, does their esteem 
increase or decrease? So in, make the motions with increase. Right? <laughs> On the other hand, when you see a person who has a position of power and they practice pride and arrogance, does your esteem of them increase or decrease? Ah, Paul, I keep wanting to say, Paul is suggesting that humility is so beautiful that it increases esteem, which is able to help you connect even with people who are opposing you. Let me give you two quick stories that, that display this. Two people who I have a high regard for and I hope to share it with you and I think seeing them in humility will even increase the esteem. Mother Teresa, a man named Shane Claiborne, a great writer of our day, spent a summer with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. He writes this, people often ask me what Mother Teresa was like. Sometimes it's like they wonder if she glowed in the dark or had a halo. She was short, wrinkled, and precious, maybe even a little ornery, like a beautiful, wise old granny. But there is one thing I will never forget, her feet. Her feet were deformed. Each morning in mass, I would catch myself staring at them. I wondered if she had contracted leprosy, but I wasn't going to ask, of course. Hey, mother, what's wrong with your feet? One day, a sister came to us. Have you noticed her feet? We nodded, curious. She said, her feet are deformed because we get just enough shoes donated for everyone, and mother does not want anyone to get stuck with the worst pair. So she digs through and finds them, and years of doing that have deformed her feet. Years of loving her neighbor as herself deformed her feet. Have you heard of a man named Sir Edmund Hillary? The first man to do what? Along with Tenzin, Tenzig Nor Norgay, they summited Everest. One of the reasons that Hillary summited Everest was to carry his Anglican priests cross to the top so that Jesus symbolically would be at the top of the world overall. Hillary went on to live a very distinguished life and a career in politics. He actually became the ambassador for the Nepalese people, spent many, many days, months, years serving the people of Nepal. On one of his many trips back to the Himalayas, he was spotted by a group of tourist climbers. They begged Hillary for a photo, and the great man obliged. They handed him an ice pick so that he would look like the part and set up for the photograph. Just then, another climber passed the, passed the group, and not recognizing the man at the center, strode up to Hillary, saying, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Let me show you. Everyone stood around in amazed silence as Hillary thanked the man, let him adjust the pick, 
and happily went on with the photograph. It doesn't matter how experienced that other climber was, his greatness was diminished by this intrusive presumption. We are repelled by pride. Edmund Hillary's greatness, however, is somehow enhanced by this humility. Whenever I tell you this story, your estimation of him increases, especially as we know that this individual episode was typical of his entire approach to life. Humility, the humility and gentleness of Christ is so beautiful that it helps connect heart to heart even with people who oppose us. And isn't it interesting that the first song that the church sang, the oldest hymn that we have in the New Testament is about the humility of Christ. It's in Philippians chapter two. It goes this way, the first hymn. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, power. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The church sings this song, and we know that it wasn't just Jesus' teaching that took down an empire. Even more, it was his execution, the way that he died, and his followers beginning to understand that true power and true greatness is not about what you wield and how much force you use. It's about how much power you hold in order to serve others. That conquered an empire. So we clothe ourselves in humility when we are opposed. But there's a second weapon that Paul talks about in verses three through five. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. First, I want to just call our attention to the language that Paul's using. Waging war, demolishing strongholds. This is kingdom language. Language of ruling and reigning. You see, Paul's worldview comes to the surface, and that is indeed the second weapon. A kingdom view of the world helps anchor us when we face opposition. We're reminded of who we are and whose we are. A kingdom view of the world. So Paul's view is simply this, that when Jesus Christ came to us, he brought a new power, a, a, a new uh, inauguration of the rule and reign of God. And he demonstrated this throughout the years he was with us, through his miracles, through his teaching, through his authority, 
through his uh, uh, love and relationships, he demonstrated the kingdom. And then he left and he sent his spirit to bring that power to rule and reign in us. And through his spirit working in and through us and reshaping and rebuilding our lives, we too now are advancing that kingdom. It's not in the big brash strokes of power that are in marbled halls. No, it's in the small spaces of life, spaces like your life and like my life that the kingdom is now on the move. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against this kingdom. And this kingdom will continue to unfold until that great day, the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns and the goal of history is complete. And then every single thought, every single action, every single moment will be his, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess. That is what motivates Paul. That is his worldview, and that is what we hold on to when we face opposition. That worldview can rightly be said to be conquering the world. One day, fully, now, in process. Paul says, demolishing arguments and every pretension that sets itself up. That's the now. That's the not yet that in which we live. I love the phrase. We see it most every week, the kingdom demolishing arguments and every pretension. The word arguments in the original language simply means arguments. <laughs> Debate discussion, thinking, arguing. The word pretension is the idea of deep opinion, high views. What, what he's getting at is this, that in the, this time in which we live, every single person has a worldview, an argument, and a pretension. Every single person believes a story that explains reality and, and why we're here and how we got here. Every single person. And this story, it forms their decisions and their decisions form their life. Every single person. And beyond that, every person holds to these arguments and pretension by faith. We're always reminding you, we're always reminding people that you've never lived one moment, never taken one breath without faith. You see, because not even science can prove the existence of God or disprove the existence of God. Science cannot prove that there's life after death. Science cannot disprove that there's life after death. There are certain things we hold to in life that are always received by faith. So every person has a worldview, and every person believes that worldview by faith. Can I interject here with something about Waterstone? This is why we are the funeral church. Waterstone is known for many things in our community, mostly good. But one of the main things Waterstone is known for is funerals. We do funerals for young churches that don't quite have a pastoral care system developed. We do funerals for anyone in our community who approaches, you may have heard recently about two uh, young men who were killed in an airplane crash in New Mexico. 
They got connected somehow to Waterstone, and we're burying both of them. I don't know if I should say this or not, but we get repeat business. We'll have people for whom we did funerals 10 years ago say, the experience was so good, we need you to bury this family member now. In the last six weeks, we've done six funerals. Part of it is because of a force in our church named Susan Brule, who is amazing at caring for people. And these young boys she has around here, like Josh Wilson and Ivan and some of these young men in our church, they're just, they care for people. But do you know why else we do funerals? Here's what you need to know. We're a church that struggles with evangelism. We always had. But we are good at funerals. At a funeral, it's one of the few places in our culture where people actually have to (laughs) come and sit for an hour and reflect, is there life after death or is there not? And they have to come and sit and hear eyewitness testimony about a man who walked out of his own grave by his own power. And they have to come and sit. Is there a God? Or did we get here by accident and raw chance? There's not too many other places in our culture these days where you get that kind of uninterrupted reflection. And so when it's needed, we're there. You die, we'll do your funeral. (laughs) And we will do it well. And we will honor you. But we will preach the gospel. It's what people need to hear when they're thinking about death. I got way off track. Can you see why I preach four different (laughs) sermons? Where were we? Demolishing arguments and pretensions. Every person has a worldview. And they receive it by faith. But... Every person's arguments and pretension will be swallowed up and taken captive, every thought, and make it obedient to Christ. You see, Paul believes that in the end, we will be at a table with Jesus boasting about him. That's where all this is going. And every thought and pretension otherwise will be captured. And it's beginning to happen now. Now, this kind of language, frankly, it's unsettling. The idea that Jesus claims power and rule over every human thought. Imagine that. Imagine the claim that he's making. I mean, we're used to partial claims. We're used to sectional obedience. I mean, you're driving along Morrison on C-470, and if you're two miles over the speed limit, you're going to get pulled over by a Morrison cop. Two miles. What if that cop walks up to you and says, license and registration? What would you do? You obey. You obey. But what if that cop, just as he's wrapping things up, and the other thing I want you to do is go home tonight and watch Jack Ryan on Netflix. What would you, what? No. Oh, and I want to tell you who you should marry. No. Why? Because police officers have a section of your life where you must obey. What if a family friend sees you struggling through college and decides to foot the bill for the rest of your college education? Woo! What if they come to your house trick-or-treating years later and hold out the bag and said, candy, please, or what do you, (laughs) trick-or-treat? What if you decide, no, I don't want to give you anything? What would that be? Disobedient. Why? Because they paid for your college education. There's a section of your life you owe them deference. 
Here comes Jesus. He's saying, I'm just not gonna write you a ticket. I'm just not gonna ask for candy. I'm asking for your every thought. You say, how can he do that? There's a logic. One of the things you have to decide at a, before your funeral is whether we're here by accident, just a random collision of atoms that have made you and that all right and wrong as human construct and that any meaning for your life is manufactured and we could have great discussion about that. You have to decide if you're an accident or you have to decide if you're created. I'm not talking about how. It could, I don't know how it happened. But who made you? How'd you get here? Because that informs why you're here, what you should be doing, and where you're going. What if you're made? Well, that changes everything about obedience, right? If you're made, you're owned. What if you wrote a song, and that song is an amazing song, and soon everyone's singing that song, and before you could get the song copyrighted, someone steals it from you, starts playing it, they copyright it, and make a million dollars. How would you feel about that? Not so good. What if you invented a car that runs on solar power, but you were slow in the patent process and someone beat you to it, taking your information? I mean, that solar-powered car would not exist without you. But someone steals it from you, the, the, the technology, and, and they make millions and billions of dollars. How, you would not feel good about that. So what rights does the creator have over us? He made us. We would not exist if he wouldn't have made us. So do you think he has the right to ask for every moment of our lives, every thought in our minds, every dimension of our existence? He has the right. He made us. We don't like that. We don't like that. We push against that. But here's the thing. You will give that kind of obedience to someone or something. The greatest theologian of the 20th century put it this way. you got to serve somebody. It may be the Lord. It may be the devil. But you got to serve somebody. Bob Dylan. <laughs> He's right. You will serve somebody. Something. David Foster Wallace put it this way. The late novelist. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. 
They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Everybody serves somebody. What about you? We will face opposition in life. And perhaps the best advice for opposition, framing Paul's letter here, comes from another great Baptist preacher, a man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr., who once said, when it comes to facing opposition, you got to have tough minds, kingdom worldview, what's really going on in this world, tough minds, and you got to have tender hearts, clothed in humility, seeking to connect heart to heart because the mission is at stake. Would you be willing to pray that into your life today? Tough minds, tender hearts. We're gonna use the words to pray from John Donne in one of his holy sonnets. I'll pray it, you pray with me, eyes open. Lord Jesus Christ, batter my heart Three-person God, for you, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand. Overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Except you enthrall me never shall be free, nor ever chased, except you ravish me. Are you bold enough to pray for Jesus Christ to ravish your heart? We're gonna sing a closing song that's about the altar. We're gonna ask you to stand and sing and make this the prayer of your heart. Tough minds, tender hearts, Lord Jesus, ravish me.